Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, you're in for quite the conversation I'm interviewing Brielle Decker. Now, this is another person kind of in the world of extreme religious organizations, organizations that some would call cults, and I speak to Brielle about her time in the FLDS Church, and the FLDS Church is the fundamental uh, Church of Latter-day Saints. I think that they're most famous for um, practicing polygamy. That's kind of why they broke away from the regular LDS church, which is now called the Mormon church, uh, to, to outsiders. I don't think that they necessarily call themselves that. But uh, yeah, Brielle has a, a quite the story because she actually was the 65th wife of Warren Jeffs. And Warren Jeffs was the leader, still is actually, the leader of the FLDS church. He's the kind of the prophet. He is the all-knowing he is the person that everyone looks at as the word of god and he actually is in prison now and still leads the church of of uh you know an estimate five to ten thousand people he still leads them he still guides them he is in prison for some really really heinous things you know his teachings are already really really strange and and put a lot of people in in bad situations a lot of uh hierarchy a lot of uh you know having women marry a man that uh and then have you know five six seven eight sister wives if you will that's kind of a a term that a lot of people know because of uh some tv shows currently but this is a, a, a crazy crazy story and brielle her insider knowledge given that she was married to warren uh, again as the 65th wife so he had 64 other before her and uh, she said that he had uh, about 10 more after her as well he married her um, when she was 18 and he was 50 what got him eventually in trouble is he was marrying off underage people to adults sometimes you know 13 year olds to 56 year old men so so really really terrible things he was doing some pretty pretty awful things himself when it came to um you know underage marriages underage pedophilia so not not great things at all to to say the least brielle just she she has such a fascinating story that this is a really really interesting interview because i'll be honest she talks kind of in a (laughs) A stream of consciousness. I think that's the best way to uh, to to say it. You know, this is almost an hour interview. I, I think I ask her four or five questions. There, there's times that uh, you know I ask one question and and she she answers it, but then we then she kind of moves into the next topic that's that's related. So you know, I edited this a little bit, um, taking out you know about a half hour of our conversation, but. Um, you know, there's not other things I wanted to edit, just because, you know, it wasn't a, a standard, I ask the question, you answer it short, I ask another question, you answer it short, just because it wasn't that, 
uh, her information i think that a lot of people are going to want to hear even if even if she got to some of the things before i was able to ask about it but that uh, that means that this one I, I don't do a ton of talking uh, if you if you hate to listen to me this is the this is the uh, episode for you because i think there was a, a, a time during this interview that i don't think i talked for about 25 or 30 minutes so very very uh insightful i really really appreciated brielle's time um but she she just covers a lot she has a lot to say and i did not want to uh to hinder her her story or or you know try to frame it in the questions that i wanted answered and not get to hear something that i would have never even thought to ask so so that's uh that's how this conversation is going to go she's going to go from growing up in in the flds church growing up um with several mothers having her her father have to give her away to warren jeffs he decided everyone who was going to marry who and and if he decided that that person was a gift of gift from god to him um then they married him so he also broke up marriages you know if if somebody did something he didn't like then then that uh that guy was now losing his wife so we're going to talk about just her growing up we're going to talk about the flds church as a whole and some of the 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 teachings we're going to talk about uh her time as warren jeff's wife and and you know being given away to to this guy that was you know almost four times her age we're going to talk about her escape because she did escape the church uh, it's it's definitely a, a, a harrowing tale for sure and uh, we're going to talk about life afterwards and how she uh she didn't necessarily have the tools that she needed to to survive because she grew up in this world uh but what she did to uh to to get by we're going to talk about this this fascinating thing where once warren went to prison she uh, and, and anyone who was within the church could try to stake claim on some of the properties uh, because this church was kind of focused significantly in southern Utah in a compound in Texas. So, you know, this this town uh, in southern Utah had almost all of the buildings were owned by the church. So once he went to prison, they were kind of selling off the buildings. And Brielle actually got ownership of Warren Jeff's house, a mansion with 40 plus bedrooms in it you know rooms for all these these wives um so it's just a a full circle moment when you know she was given away to him was married to him for 10 plus years and then was actually awarded his house once he went to prison and to make it even more amazing she uh, decided to to give that property to a recovery center the dream center that now helps other women getting out of polygamy move on and and have a uh, a meaningful life so just amazing amazing conversation brielle is an amazing person i really think you're going to enjoy this one here is brielle decker i'm here today with brielle decker miss decker how are you i'm doing good 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 hardest question of the whole whole day uh just introduce yourself i am brielle decker I was the 65th wife of Warren Jeffs, and I am. I was instrumental in finding the Dream Center, which is a worldwide organization, because I acquired Warren Jeffs' house, and we built together a recovery center in Warren Jeffs' old house. I want to kind of unpack all of that. Let's kind of start at the the beginning. 
um, because it is quite the story. So I want people to kind of grasp exactly how amazing all this is. Let's kind of start with, you know, I, I've talked to people from IBLP. I've talked to people from uh, the Fundamentalist Baptist Church, all these different acronyms. You know, my, my listeners know all these different acronyms. Here's another one, FLDS, which tell us exactly first what that acronym means and then also just kind of a summation of exactly what the FLDS church is. Okay. So FLDS is um, Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. So Latter-day Saints is actually the name of the Mormons. Most people know them by Mormon name if they're not part of the Mormons. Mm -hmm. But Latter-day Saints is their actual name. And F stands for Fundamentalist, which means a branch off. So the difference between the LDS faith and the FLDS faith is the turning point was over polygamy. So polygamy is what FLDS continued to practice where LDS decided years and years ago, like a long time ago, they decided to um, stop the practice of polygamy. So they don't all know their own hair. Like they don't all know. LDS themselves, members of the Mormon faith, don't always know that that was the reason because they don't understand the FLDS faith all the time. But most of them do have more knowledge than just the general public that have never been Mormon at all or have the foundation of Joseph Smith's teachings. So Joseph Smith was the founder of the Latter-day Saints. And so all the branches off of the Latter-day Saints still have that same foundation, which is basically the Book of Mormon. It's not really encouraged to read the Bible that often. Mm -hmm. They do have the Bible, but it's told in their scriptures to only read the Bible as far as it is translated correctly. So they actually add and subtract to the Bible in their Book of Mormon, which is something the Bible says not to do. So. Yeah, no, that's a, a great yeah. explanation. I just wonder too, because I actually have some some family members who are LDS. They're kind of a distant family member, so that not people that I could really ask this question to. And I know that I know that FLDS and the LDS Church, the biggest difference is, of course, the the polygamy. Um, and I'm sure there's little, you know, other little things too. But is that really kind of truly just the the huge difference? Polygamy. That's the one that people you know know about given that they kind of broke away in the 1800s now is there a, is there significant differences other than that yes there are huge differences because they have different her like leaders and in the mormon faith the leader his interpretations of the joseph smith doctrine is really really important so there's been like seven leaders different so like the lds still has their leaders, and then the FLDS have a different train from the time they broke off, which was over polygamy. So when Warren Jeffs came, the big another big difference was family. LDS really highlight family and try to stick together, where Warren Jeffs' interpretations of the doctrine was significantly different. He believed that everybody belonged to God, and so they basically belonged to him because he was the leader, and he was supposed to be the mouthpiece of God on earth. So basically, he he split up the families because they were all his mm -hmm. instead of like the Mormon faith try to keep the families together. So they they have significant difference in many of the interpretations of the same doctrine, gotcha. depending on the leader. 
I got you. I got you. And I, I want to get to Warren Jeffs here in, in a minute, given that he kind of plays a, a big role in, in our conversation. But from my understanding, and this may be wrong, so please please tell me if it is, the FLDS church, it's always had some very interesting beliefs, but it got more strict and maybe a little bit more harsh once Warren Jeffs took over. His father, I think, was named Rulon. Was he yeah. just was he just as 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 bad or I, I feel like I've read somewhere that Warren really kind of took it up to level 10, if you will. OK, so most so there's different areas. So like they had a, when I was growing up, they had an area where Warren Jeffs was, which was like more like Salt Lake area. Sandy, Utah is where I lived, where the school was that um, all the FLDS children went to homeschool that mm-hmm. Warren Jeffs was the principal of. Mm-hmm. So that's where I grew up. A lot of people grew up in Colorado City and Hildo, Utah. That's where the Dream Center is. There's different like locations where FLDS were. And so the people that grew up in an area where Warren Jeffs didn't, wasn't most of his time. Mm-hmm. Their stories are a lot different than mine mm-hmm. because they usually say what you're saying. They usually say Ruland Jeffs, when he was the leader, then we didn't know about Warren Jeffs that much. And so it was a lot different for them. But for me, living in the same area as Ruland lived and Warren lived, it wasn't as big of a contrast for me mm. because he was the one that was the principal of my school till I went to sixth grade. And then I um, did some in-house homeschool for two years. And then I actually went moved down to Colorado City at 16 with my family. And the Jeffs had moved down there like a year before that, I think. So... I did go back to the Jeffs Academy when I moved back to Colorado City where the Jeffs were. So like most of my life was homeschool. Like I only did homeschool. I never went to public school where people that lived in Colorado City that weren't right there by the Jeffs. A lot of them did go to public school for a time at least. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, and that makes sense. Obviously, the closer you are to, you know, the the leaders, the more I guess you're they're going to be looking over you. So I, that, that makes sense to me for sure. I want to kind of talk about just, you, you're, you've already touched on it quite a bit, but just growing up in this church, I, I assume you were born into the FLDS church. Yeah. Um, I, I think you had 14 siblings, two, two mothers, which I, I want to first ask if that's normal, if, if a lot of people have more or if it's just the, you know, the, the prophets or whatever you guys called them, um, if they had more, but, but talk just a little bit about growing up within the church. Okay, so one topic that's usually pretty interesting is that my parents were in arranged marriage. Mm -hmm. So my mother and father were pulled aside at church and told there was going to be a wedding. It was going to be their wedding and they could say yes or no at the ceremony, which they had never met each other. So um, they had heard about each other, but they had never really met each other. So they didn't have a reason to say no. It became a matter of trust in their leaders. I was born their 11th child of 14. That's right. And um. At 13 years old is when my second mother came. So like a lot of our our marriages were arranged, like all of them, basically. The leader had ultimate say in every wedding by the time I grew up. So during my parents' days, there was, they were just starting arranged marriage. So like there was more dating going on prior to them. But like my parents were in arranged marriage. So like I'm a product of arranged marriage. That's a really big thing in the FLDS because most of the branches off the LDS and even the LDS date. 
most of them don't have that interpretation on their doctrine that the leader has to decide who they marry. But FLDS is significantly different in that way. You know, in our situation, by the time I grew up, it was like life and death if you decided on your own without the leader. Mm. It actually became like a sin to to date at all. Mm-hmm. You had to wait for the day. They had a quote that Warren Jess would tell us in school that the Lord will give the best to those who leave the choice to him. And that was about marriage. So um, the whole idea of marriage was was really intense. And um, a lot of the plural wives were also in that same category. They were, they were assigned. The husband and wife were assigned. So even when you get like further in the story, when you talk about the problems that Warren Jeffs had, he like it made so the the arranged marriage piece of it so when you're talking about pedophilia it wasn't a normal pedophilia that was going on in the flds it was like because of the arranged marriages he was commanding people to become pedophiles which normally it's an attraction thing so it was really detrimental it was worse because people it was linked to their salvation and to the rest of their family so Warren Jeffs had so much say. He didn't just put the marriages together. He would take them apart if they weren't doing as he wanted them to mm-hmm. and remarry the wife to another guy. or the. So like when you're talking about how many wives was it normal to have, it, it all depended on the leader in our church because it was all arranged marriage. A lot of it, he would say, he'd justify with the doctrine, his interpretation of the doctrine about like, you get another wife because you're worthy of it or you don't get a wife because you can't control the one you already have. Where his father, Rulin, um, had a stroke when I was really young. So I, I was a year old when Rulin became the prophet. So I don't remember the prophets before that. And then Warren basically took over. So like by the time I grew up, it was basically Warren in my life. Mm. He, he, he was running the church in my eyes before he even usurped authority and took over the whole the whole FLDS. But a lot of people who lived in Short Creek will say they didn't see it coming. But in my eyes, he had taught the children that were going to the FLDS homeschool in my area that that was what was going to happen pretty much. <laughs> he told them like stories and history. Like we had so much indoctrination. And it, my first grade teacher was his first wife. Like it wasn't really a surprise to me. Because he had taught little children from years before I was even born. He was 17 when he became the principal of the school. And he experimented on children to start with in that school. And then he learned, he studied Hitler. He learned manipulation tactics and all of that by being the principal of that school. And he, um, so when by the time I went to that school, he taught us stories in history, like we had history lessons, but they weren't world history. It was all basically more indoctrination, church history, you know, stories. And he would talk about the day that God will choose the next leader. It won't be the vote of the people. It doesn't matter what the people want. It will be God. And that's all that matters and stuff like that. So like for me, it wasn't a surprise, um, but it was a lot of kind of like grooming and stuff. There was a lot of things that we didn't really have control over. Um, like in a normal dating situation, now that I have dated on the outside of the church, I know a little bit like people watch the person and who they are, who they 
who they like and who they're talking to and who they get along with. And they kind of tease them over that kind of stuff. But in our church, when we were growing up, it was more about the leader. So they would watch the leader and then they would tease us according to what the leader was acting like. That was more of the scenario. So it was a lot different than dating and all of that. Um, I, it's hard to describe because it was just so different. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. And the other thing that I found that was really different kind of in, in researching this, you're talking about how the leader decides who, who everyone's going to marry and if they're going to have another wife or if they're going to have a yeah. wife t- taken away from them. You have this these interesting dynamics that on one side is illegal and on the other side is just uh, creates a very weird dynamic where I I was listening to a, 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 a gentleman in the church who was talking, he had left the church and talking about how strange it was that, you know, he had been assigned, I think, five or six wives and one was, you know, underage, one was, was way too young. And then the other one was, uh, another one was a... Um, wife of of a person who had died. So he was like in his 40s at this time. He had a wife who was, I think, like 15 years old. And then he was assigned one from a man who died. And the wife was like 55, way older than him. So it was, it, it's, it seems like, and I mean, I hate to say it this way, but it sounds, I mean, it, because I think it was the case that these wives were just kind of, I don't know, definitely property of the church. And it didn't, ages didn't matter whether they were old, whether they were young. I, that was right. just a, a strange, strange thing to me. I can't imagine. He was talking about how, like, I, I think this, this, his wife, this wife that was in her late fifties, might have been one of his teachers in grade school that now he was married to. So it's very strange. Yeah, the lot. There was no logic. It was all supposed to be revelation from God, but I, also they taught like these really big picture things in their history lessons. Well, at least Warren just taught us as children, and also like he had his training a lot so I don't really know where which doctrine I learned this from but I remember so one of his doctrines was that you know basically the LDS church teaches also that the Jesus Christ is our elder brother he's not like an all-powerful superior being like people that believe the Bible usually think in the LDS faith started from Joseph Smith was basically he is our elder brother that we have to become like. So perfection is a really big deal in this um, growth process because we have to be perfect to rule our own worlds. And that's why Warren just thought of polygamy was so important was because to, to populate a whole world, they have to be a lot of children and you need multiple wives. And so it was like a really big, almost like there was no logic. There was no realism in any of it. There was no, like, it was impossible to meet the standards for almost everybody. And it was just up to God's mercy, basically, if you even could continue on. I mean, it was just so, so broad of a picture. And there was no room for mistakes. Yeah. And I want to kind of get to your, um, because I, I believe that you were married off when you were 18. So not not underage, which I'm happy to to hear that part. But I just wonder, we talk so much about you know, indoctrination and, and, and that comes with a lot of, obviously you grew up in the church. So a lot of belief in these things. So I, I first wonder when this was all happening, you know, you're about to be married off. Were you, what was your feelings? Were you excited to see who the, you know, the leader was going to marry you off to? Was it, was it something that you, you know, at that time even thought was kind of strange or, or what was your mindset then? 
So I had been so um, indoctrinated, but like most people would think that it was an honor to marry the leader because that was like really taught to us. That was something that they taught that if you marry the leader, you'll have, he'll definitely teach you right and you'll have the best chances of meeting God someday. But in my scenario, I had a sister who went into his family prior to me, like five years before. So I knew a lot about him. I knew a lot about his family. And I was actually scared that it would be him that I was supposed to marry. I I was scared because like he was a person who believes in the pyramid. So the whole foundation, the, the top is the leader. They have the bishops, you know, the, you know, they have this structure that's like a pyramid. They have the wives in there, the children at the bottom. Like it's all a pyramid, but in his family, there's also a pyramid according to like wives. And so like Brill and his father had like a rotation cycle. So basically every wife would get a turn after so many days and it was a lot of days because Ruland had himself, I think, 65 wives in the end. Where Warren Jeffs, um, he had a different type of system. He had a favorite wife that was always with him. It was his scribe and all of that. And then he would tell all of the other wives, God will tell me if you're ever worthy to be with me or around me. And so like, there was no inkling of hope. Like, you just had to like kind of rely on what he felt that day. And... Um, so for me, it was fine because I didn't really like him. I liked the idea of making it to heaven fast and God and stuff. But like, I didn't really, I wasn't really attracted to him. So that was um, not hard for me to just never have a turn. That was just fine with me. If I heard from him by the end of when I escaped, if I heard like for probably a year two before that, it was like I'd get a message from him about every six months. And that was like all the contact I had with him was like one note passed through somebody else that was about it like by the time I left which was a quite a while from the time that I married him because I was trapped in there for a long time so I married him at 18 and I was scared um I um barely had turned 18 he became the leader right before I turned 18 like September I turned 18 in November and then um, the ceremony happened in January. My mother was not invited to the wedding because he was already running from the law. And I didn't register that until after the ceremony. Um, but he wasn't on the most wanted. He he just, he, I think he had told the congregation, but it didn't really settle in my mind at that time um, until after the ceremony. But anyway, my mother wasn't invited because he was running from the law. He wanted the least amount of people involved as possible. He did call my father and um, ask him to take me on a drive, which my father at the time that happened did not know who I, who I was going to marry. But he, I think he was worried also because of how Warren Jess had acted prior to that. So my whole family basically teased me almost my entire life that I was going to marry Warren Jess. And I didn't know why I was super scared. And um, I knew so much about his family, but I was worried that that was usually factored into them, how obedient they were, and also how much knowledge they have of how to be obedient. So like, it's basically more brainwashing. The more brainwashing you have, the more generations of people that have been in the church factor into how, how much knowledge you have of the church, how obedient you are. So I wasn't very high on that list. Because my mother's family was a convert to the church and my father's were my grandparents were kicked out of the church when I was 13. So I didn't have very long heritage of people being in the church. So I wasn't in the top of the category. So I was worried about that. 
And so I knew I probably wouldn't be treated well in his family because I already had a sister who went in there and wasn't very high on the list. So I was like, I'm not sure. I didn't really want to do it, but I didn't dare say no to somebody who, who's been grooming me, you know, like, and he's the leader at this point. So I didn't dare do anything. I felt cornered. I felt like standing on the edge of a cliff with like, which way do you want to jump off? It was not, there was no way out of it besides leave the church, which um, I didn't have the strength to do at that time. And I also had made some commitments to myself that that wasn't what I wanted. I kind of just was hoping on my drive up there that it wouldn't happen. I was like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Trying to convince myself the whole time that I was wrong. My father was crying. My mother recognized the situation before I left. And she actually recognized it before I did. Cause she had like 11 children. She had 10 children before me that had gone through this. And during my time frame, she knew that a lot of the other girls had gone on a drive with their father and never came home. So she was worried when my father came in and said, we need to go on a drive. When she first saw his look, though, she actually screamed no, which tells me she was very nervous. Mm. And, and, you know, I don't blame him. My father has since told me he didn't want me to marry Warren Jeffs, which I didn't know at the time because he couldn't tell me. Because if he had crossed Warren Jeffs, who was the leader at this time, he could lose mother and all the other siblings. That's one of the dynamics with like pedophilia and stuff. Like when he assigned underage brides to these guys, they had to choose, or if they were told to give away a child, they had to choose between giving away their one child and watching from a distance to see if they're okay. Because he was promising things like, oh, they're just, they're going to be safe and nothing's going to happen to them until they're old enough. And it just wasn't true. So they're like, we can watch from a distance and see what happens, or we can lose all of our family and all our kids today. That was their choice. That's not really a choice. They didn't realize that when they left the church, they could fight in the courts and maybe get all their children back. That would have been the right way to do it. But they didn't have a lot of knowledge about the outside world. So it wasn't really a balanced, fair choice for any of them. And that was the same position my father was in. Even though I was 18, he couldn't really go against Warren Jeffs. He couldn't even tell me that he was worried about me marrying Warren Jeffs or that he didn't want me to. Or anything like that, because if he crossed Warren Jeffs and Warren Jeffs had his mindset, then he could lose the rest of his family. Mm. Mm. So for me, I just, I was just hoping it wasn't true. I went up there and I I went on the drive. My father was crying the whole time, um, telling me sorry about like not buying me a cedar chest and just little things. I was like, it's okay. It's okay. And then we got up there. We went to one of one house first. We went to Ruland's house first, and that's where we were told to go. And somebody came out and escorted us to where Warren Jeffs was, which was one of his brother's houses in the community because he was running from the law. He was he didn't like to go to his house or Ruland's house because he felt like the law was watching that consistently. So he didn't want to be there necessarily. So they escorted us to where he was. And then when I went in there, um, he had the ultimate say in every scenario. He kind of put me in a really tight spot. He told me that in the end, he said, you know, God, you have a strong testimony of God. He didn't really ask me if I wanted to marry him. He kind of just um, told me God wants you to marry me. You know, like that was basically the idea of it all. I was like, it wasn't about like if I wanted to. He just said, what do you think God wants? And I was like, I wondered, you know, because I didn't dare cross him. Because part of the doctrine was that if you lie to the leader, you can get a repercussion immediately. 
And there was other, like it's a catch 22 because like the other side of it is if you tell him that you want to marry him, then he would get angry most of the time. So like there was no right scenario in that situation. Most of the time he would, would just tell them who they're going to marry. But because it was him, I don't know why he put me in a corner, but like, um, I just said, I wondered if it was supposed to be this, the person that my sister went, you know, her family. And he's like, God says, yes. And, you know, that was basically the extent of the conversation. It wasn't like, you know, he said, at first he said, do you want, do you know who God wants you to marry? And he's like, yeah, God does want you to marry me. So basically I was like, but what if I don't want to, you know, like, even if God wants me to, what if I don't want to, you know, those are two different questions in my mind, Mm -hmm. but not in his mind. So then he just brought another brother into the room and started the ceremony right there. So my mother was never invited. My father was already there. So he went to the little ceremony thing. There was no ring, which is weird because like, he's the one that decides he might as well be ready. You know, you'd think, Mm -hmm. but yeah, he's just, I don't know. And then, there was a kiss at the end. He sent my father out of the room. I did hesitate immediately because like I had been raised my whole life to never date, never think about boys. And then this is my first wedding and his 65th, you know, I was his 65th wife. He had like 79 at least before he was put in prison. And we think he might have, have he may have some spiritual wives even since he went to prison, mm. not like ever been with them, but like ones that he claims. So like, um, like I've I've been like so reserved my whole childhood. And then after he sent my father out, he's like, come sit on my lap. And I would just like hesitated. And his face went to anger immediately because the contrast was so big. He uh he was uh like fifty years old. I think he was fifty years old. And I was eighteen. So like after he got angry at me, he did call my father back in the room and he sent me home that night, which was a blessing to me. And even at the time, I didn't register that it was a punishment. It was later when I went to like the elite groups that um, he kept in a public setting with his family all around. He'd tell them all like, I'm sorry, I sent you home. And I would just tell him, I don't care. You know, that's fine, whatever. And then he would repeat it again. I'm sorry, I sent you home. Like he wanted me to take it seriously. And so then I started to register that that was a punishment. And it was super embarrassing because like everybody's aware, you know, it's like, I don't know. He was, he wasn't, he didn't really live his own doctrine in my opinion. Cause this doctrine is you're supposed to correct in private. You don't do that in front of everybody, but he would, and he would, he'd break all the rules. And, you know, it wasn't the way they taught us either. You know how I described before that he's supposed to teach us so well that we'll have the best chances of making it into heaven and seeing God. He was doing the opposite. He's blaming us for everything and getting away with everything. So, and he couldn't do wrong because according to their doctrine, the leaders can't do wrong without God killing them. God will not allow them to lead the people astray. And that's why all the FLDS to this day keep justifying and trying to find any way possible that he's innocent because they Mm -hmm. think God would have killed him if he really did it. Mm. So it's like, yeah, it's really... It's really sad because like if you think about the Bible, when when a leader in the that teaches just the Bible gets caught doing something or does, you know, gets accused of something, people just go to the next church. They don't continue justifying and following that leader most of the time. They may forgive them or they may believe something else, but like they usually don't a whole congregation just figure out ways 
to accept it. Yeah, I mean, it just shows this the brainwashing, the indoctrination that's that's there for for sure. And I, I want to kind of get to the 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 part of your story that where where you escape. But before we get to that, I, I have to ask. So you got married at eighteen. How long were you in the church as a a wife of Warren Jeff? I know that you didn't really have much communication with him while during that time. But how long were you in the church as a married person before you did escape? So part of the story is like I went after the wedding, I went to a secret meeting and decided in that secret meeting to go to Texas. And the reason why was for the children. He told us in that meeting that not like he was running from the law. So um, this was the next day. So it was just, you know, it wasn't that night or anything. But he said he was running from the law. He didn't want his children to be questioned by the law. So he was going to take him to another another place. And he didn't tell us where at that time. But he said, I took him away, hid him. He said, but God revealed that not one of the birth mothers, the one, the mothers that gave birth to these children, could go with them at that time. Later on, some of them did go with the children. But at that time, he took away every mother that gave birth. He took away their children and brought them to, to Texas. But for me, um, I was a mother who didn't have children, so I wanted to go to Texas. So that's kind of important because I feel like, People don't always understand why I would even go in that deep. Because once you got to Texas, we didn't know where we were going for one thing. And before we left, we um, didn't, when we got there, it took days because we're like in Utah, you know. So when I first got there, there was like trailers and they were building. And then um, later on, they built the guard tower and they had like, from the beginning, I think they had people driving around the perimeter, men that would go around every 15 minutes. So they had like this pyramid cycle where if you were struggling, you couldn't even be in Texas. But um, if you were struggling, they usually had another person like watching you. So like if you watch, um, like they found out that I was under, when they did my documentary, they found out that I was under 24-hour watch. I had cameras on me all the time. I had people that were um, assigned to make sure I didn't escape. So if I would have ran, I didn't know where to go. And if I did run, um, I wouldn't have been gone very long before somebody would have noticed like three minutes. I probably wouldn't have even got to the edge of the property. It was so huge. Mm. So um, I was trapped. That's important to understand how, if you talk about how long I was in there, I was in there till I was 26. I did not escape till I was 26. And it was a miracle. I even did escape. And the, and people don't always understand that either because like when I did escape, um, I had been on they had cult doctors that had been told to go to cult. I mean, college. They had been told to go to college and learn all this stuff. And then when they come back to the the community to help the FLDS people, then Warren Jess would change all the rules. And he had never been to college, so he would tell them how to which medicines to give people, certain people, and especially me because I was his family and his wife. So like, the doctors had to do what Warren Jess said even if they knew better because they would lose their family if they didn't do what Warren Jeff said. So by the time I was 23, so I, I started to fight Warren Jeffs about 20 years old. So I was like 18, about 20 years old. I figured out that I didn't believe in the God I'd been taught about my whole life. I believed there was a God, but I didn't believe in that God. And I didn't feel like I knew him, but I felt like he might know me. So that's how my story goes is like, cause I had seen a lot of stuff by then 
married him at 18, about 20 years old. I'm fighting Warren Jeffs, who has like 10,000 followers before he became the leader. So that's like, think about domestic violence and how two couples can, you know, two people can fight. And sometimes there are extended families involved. So there's more. But like in my situation, I turned on somebody who had the potential of 10,000 abusers. How am I supposed to survive that? You know, in domestic violence, it gets bad enough. You know, it, you know how we don't need way more. So like um, in my situation, I was strategically fighting him, like psychologically mostly. And he was fighting back psychologically because that's how they do it. So I learned that in some ways um, from intuition. He taught that like he had the right to tell everybody if their own intuition was from God or the devil. So you just say, oh, I don't like that. That's from the devil. But in my situation, I would use his words against himself. I'd say, well, you said this, you know, at this time in this training, and he could never be from the devil. So then they would have to give me opportunities because they did believe in God, their God. Most of the people around me believed in his doctrine, even if I didn't. So I had studied his doctrine so much that it was it was quite simple to do that. And it would work more often. So to just tell them I had intuition about this, you know, they wouldn't go with that. But even the idea to use his doctrine against himself was my intuition. I just didn't ask him if it was from God or the devil. You know, I just did that for survival reasons. And I wanted to look for a way out. So when I first turned on him at 20, then he was still running from the law. He ran from the law for a while. So like, I don't have all the deadline, the dates or the, like it's a estimated times, mm -hmm. but if you Google, you can find out exactly when he was caught. And so like I, I hid for a while in like a place that he considered rebellious people and he didn't want to bring him back to short Creek at that time because he didn't want all his updated knowledge to be spread all over people who had never been taught by him. So he had like a system where the pyramid was like the elite, the people that were worthy of doctrine that's how he started splitting up families to start with was like, I'll call you and tell you if you're worthy. So he didn't want the people that weren't worthy mixing with the people that were worthy, even if, you know, so he had these middle ground houses we called houses in hiding. Mm -hmm. And I lived in those a lot because I couldn't be among the elite and he didn't want me among the people who hadn't been called yet. Mm -hmm. So I stayed there until he got caught because I was afraid of being around him. And there was reasons for that. Um, he he um, was doing it bad stuff. And I knew enough about it to know that I didn't want to be around him. So I hid from him and was rebellious on purpose. I stayed in that situation for about a year at least. It was probably two years. And then he got caught by the law and I started to research my routes out. And that took me a while too. So at 23... I was, he started drugging me with cult doctors and telling them what to give me, even though he'd never been to college. So at 26, I escaped. You can see like it was a progression. Yeah. It wasn't like they gave me all the medication at once. They worked up to what the dose was. By the time I left, it was a lethal dose. It was like 800 Seroquel. And it was, that's why it was such a miracle is because if you think about mental health, even if you're an adult in America, if you have a guardian, you lose your American rights to actually decide for yourself your decisions. Like a guardian, in a lot of ways, depending on how the contract goes or how the judge says it needs to go, you don't have as much say 
you don't have your full American rights of, you know, choice. So that's in a mental health situation when most people get guardians. They have somebody to to take care of them, to watch over them. And if they're a good person, that's okay. But in my situation, nobody would have known me. Uh, Warren Jeff, you know, that was outside of the church. And Warren Jess would have been my guardian, which wouldn't have probably been a good situation for me. And another factor was like, if I had gone to court, like mental health court over it, my family was believing Warren Jess over me because they were trained to do that. And the doctors had to do what Warren Jess said. So like nobody in the courtroom would have supported me in not being mental. So it didn't matter at that point if I was crazy or not, because the judge is going to believe what he believes. You see what I'm saying? So like, I never, it didn't come down to that because I escaped right, I believe right before that. And my mother actually told some of the activists that were helping me on the outside that she had custody of me and they requested the paperwork and she didn't have it Hmm. because it didn't really happen. I believe it was in the works. I had figured out that that had happened to other SLDS people. And that's what woke me up to the reality that that's probably what they're trying to do. I didn't realize that it was stacking up on me. The mental health stuff was stacking up that high prior until I met people who had, who had lost their American rights and that were being controlled by the cult still and couldn't, couldn't change it. They're adults, but like they have people that are their guardians and they, they don't have any say. So even if they escape, they have to be brought back because their guardian says so. Mm -hmm. So in my situation, I escaped before that. So I was 26 and I still had my American rights, which was the main miracle. And then, so I escaped out a window. I have a dramatic story. My story is um, not typical of people that are from the creek. Most people were not married to the prophet. You know, most people, you know, the general people, if they lived in Short Creek their whole lives, it's a question that probably should be asked to them. They lived in Short Creek their whole lives. They can walk away. Most of them can just like leave when they get upset or whatever. But in my situation, being so deep in there, um, it wasn't that easy for me. They locked me in solitary confinement. They were trying to take away my American rights. You know, like they teach that it's easy. If you want to leave, you can leave. But it's not that simple all the time. The psychological games play into it really a lot. So, um, so in my situation, I was locked in solitary confinement. My brother was being threatened to do that. And um, I, after he drove away, I found some things to unscrew the screws, found some scissors in the room, and I unscrewed one of the screws. And then I pounded on um, the other screw. It was sticking out halfway and was really tight. I couldn't get it unscrewed with the scissors, but I just pounded on it till it broke off. And then I opened the window because it was like the kind of window that has two panes and the second one lifts up. So they put two screws where it lifts up and it would hit the screws so it wouldn't go up. So when I got the screws out, it would go up and I climbed out. But one of the things that's interesting to some people is that I didn't take my ID or anything. I didn't really know know I needed my ID. But like I didn't take anything with me at the time because if I opened any drawers and I thought if I just climb out the window, they'll think I maybe laid on the bed. You know, possibly they'll hear some noise, but they if I open drawers, they're going to know I'm leaving. So I just climbed out the window and they actually didn't notice for two hours that I had left. They thought I had started reading. Um, so anyway, I escaped that day, ran through the town, through side roads, through the creek. Like I didn't take the main roads because I had been caught on the main roads by FLDS people. I tried several times to escape, 
I'd asked to be, and they were trying to like create a scenario where I was trapped more for the rest of my life by taking, you know, being guardians over me. But I had asked to leave, and they say in their doctrine, they if you want to leave, you can go. But that's just not always true. So I, um, I went, I ran through the yard, and when I got to, I was almost to the house that I was running to because I had to go to a specific house because this house had people that were ex-FLDS. And I, I, I didn't want to just show up at somebody's house because like it could be an FLDS house and that would be detrimental to me. So I had to know exactly where I was running to. And I selected a house in my mind and I was like, I'm going there. I ran to a yard before I got there and in her, there was a lady sitting in her backyard meditating. And I ran by her and she stopped and she's like, can I help you? And she was dressed ex-FLDS. I didn't know her. I don't believe I'd ever met her. But I said, yes, I'm trying to get to the house next door. So she drove me up there. She said, should I go in or should I not? And I said, you might as well come in. And she went in with me. And the family I ran to had recently left. They had all left the church together. But they um, didn't know any organizations on the outside, their phone numbers or how to get a hold of them, the names. They knew there was some. There were small ones at that time, but they didn't know how to get a hold of them. Well, the lady that walked in with me, did know their numbers. And so she called them. By the end of the day, I convinced the family I ran to, to drive me to the neighboring town and drop me off there. They wanted to keep me. They were like, we know you, we'll take care of you. I was like, I don't think that's going to work in this situation. Cause like we're, I'd seen standoffs from others of Warren Jeff's family or Ruland's family. They had police would get involved. And the police at that time were at FLDS in the short Creek area. So I didn't want that to happen. I'm like, it's not going to work. So we went to a neighboring town and I met this activist for the first time. And she came from a different branch of LDS. She came from the AUB group, which is a different group than FLDS. But she had escaped that, became an activist. And um, she met me that day. She drove me to her house. Um, I stayed at her place that night. And... She really fought for me through the whole process of my escape. When people called and said, where is she? You know, she's under our custody, you know, and things like that. She would, she would ask the right questions, but she also knew what to ask because she came from an environment similar. So she had, she was like a peer support specialist. She wasn't really certified, but she, by the state of Utah, but she had like experience behind her. A peer support specialist is usually somebody who goes by lived experience. And so she was going by her own experience. Like she knew what kind of tricks these leaders play and how the dynamics are in Utah a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So she, and I had gone to police officers in other neighboring towns before, and they didn't always know. Like I went to Flagstaff, Arizona, and they said, when I asked to talk to the police, the police came, but they talked to my brother who was with me at that time first. And, um, when they came back to me, they said, we already signed a paper because of your mental state, you have to go back. And I was like, that doesn't make sense because they didn't realize that they, they needed to ask more questions. They didn't realize, like, I think my brother had my cult doctor records without my signature. And in that regular world, you can't get those hospital records without a signature. You know, you, if you go to the hospital, you have to have a signature to get somebody's records. 
Well, my brother had those records, I think, with him. And so the police officers just automatically automatically believed that I had signed away my American rights, like that they had guardianship. But the reality is, is I never signed anything. So it was a matter of when that happened to me, I was like, I got to go to activists. Maybe they can help me. When my um, when this specific activist got involved, she did recognize those signs. She did ask, I need to see the paperwork because she's 26. If you don't have her signature, then she's 26 and you should just leave her alone. <laughs> and they couldn't provide those. So eventually I did leave the state of Utah and go to Tennessee with the activist help because I was being hunted on the roads. If I rode the bus and tried to get some anything done, shopping or anything, they were hunting the roads for me in Salt Lake because they thought I might be in a homeless shelter or somewhere. And um, I was mostly in domestic violence shelters after they started to talk to my mom so much because I was afraid of being tracked to her house. And there was another FLDS person who was kidnapped off the road at the time. And stuff. So it was just unsafe to be in Utah at that time and have like, there was so much paperwork that needed done. I wanted my name to change. So my name before was Lynette Warner. It's now Brielle Decker. Um, I'm married now, so I, I do have Blanchard, but I usually go by Brielle Decker in media. So um, when I, so I went to Tennessee, when I was in Tennessee, then I changed my name, my social and was legally adopted. And the lady who adopted me was this activist who first found me in Utah. She, I talked to her and she was like, I'm going to talk to my husband. And they decided to adopt me because the reason, main reason in my situation where I needed a different family is because like every person in America, if they go to the hospital for too long, um, if they usually in the end, so like I had PTSD. So in the beginning it was super important because I would be in the hospital at times, but like if I was there too long and I, and I wasn't like coherent, like if I was like disassociated for too long, then the doctors usually go back to the family to make a decision. What should we do with her? And um, I didn't want to wake up in the cold. That just wasn't something I wanted to do. So I did the paperwork, legal paperwork. It took a while. I was in Tennessee for two years so that if I was in the hospital for too long, it would default to my adoptive mom and my parents there. And it would actually, when they changed my social it changed my whole medical record. So they didn't even have any record of what I was on before. They had to completely start over with my medicine. I don't take anything like I used to. I take like 20 milligrams of one thing, but before I was on 800, you know, so it did shift me, but like, it wasn't like, it's not 800, (laughs) you know, that's a huge difference. And I've been stable now for like six years. I haven't been in the hospital and I've been out for almost 12 years. Yeah. So um, when I came back to Utah, I I came back to Utah because I couldn't pay my rent. When they changed my social security number, they didn't change my SSI. And at that time I was on SSI. I'm not anymore, but um, they didn't change it in the same month. They were still going to, it was just taking a while and I couldn't pay my rent that month. So I called my attorney who helped me do that, who was in Utah and asked him about I asked him if, if there was any way to speed up the process. And he said, it's really interesting because I just had an ex-FLDS man who became a, he went to college after he left the church and got a degree in 
Air Force, like he's a pilot now. He walked in my office and he said, Short Creek, which is Colorado City and Hillville, Utah. That's what they called the towns before they were officially named cities. It was called Short Creek. Well, he said, Short Creek is changing from FLDS to XFLDS. And anybody who's in crisis, tell them to fly home. And so that was a really hard thing for me, but I didn't really have that much of a choice because I couldn't pay my rent. I was going to get it. I didn't want to be homeless. <laughs> so I did take the opportunity to fly back. I went to an XFLDS house in Salt Lake and uh, a lady took me in until I could get it all sorted out. Then I paid her back um, for the rent amount. And then I was in Salt Lake and um, I found out while I was in Salt Lake about Warren Jeff's house in Hildale where he used to live, where he took his children away and took them to Texas. That was a target house that he didn't really want to be at. That house, um, they said, because the landowners of the whole Short Creek area was a charitable trust called the UEP, they were giving titles back to people who built the houses or a wife of the person who built the house. So most people think I just went to court and was given the house. But like legally, I wasn't his legal wife. I wasn't Warren Jeff's legal wife. So that wouldn't have even worked in my case. But in this situation where the people running the charitable trust at the time when I went and applied for the house were ex-FLDS, they knew that I was once Warren Jeff's wife. So what happened is the UEP was set up by the, the church and Warren Jess was the sole owner when he became the leader. He like took over the whole trust and then ran from the law. So the city went in. He wasn't that bright in some things. Um so when the city came in and took over the trust because he was running from the law, they gave it to XFLDS people. And so they started giving back titles that were in this trust to people who built the houses and people and wives of the people that built the house. So that in my situation, the house that I got was Warren Jeff's house. It's a mansion. It had like 40 rooms, you know, 45 rooms. So like um, I got his house and I started doing media. It was a high profile house. Everybody wanted to see it. Um, it wasn't that nice, but, you know, my dream, I had a big dream and I got to talk about it, was to build a recovery center, help these people. Because like what I went through was super hard and I wanted people to have a place to go if they were leaving. Cause when you get on the outside, it's, it's, not, it's not the same. You have to learn a lot of stuff to be able to function. And what I usually say is like what you use to survive, you may not need to thrive on the outside. So in my situation, I used Warren Jeff's doctrine against himself and I don't even use Warren Jeff's doctrine out here. You know, so like by doing media and free tours of the house, I met Christians that they do, do study the Bible in town that I didn't know were here. They were here like quite a few years before they had come to town and found a, a situation where they could stay. And so anyway, I met some Christians. They started bringing more Christians through on tours, free tours of the house. And one of them was a maintenance guy at the Phoenix Dream Center. So the Dream Center is a worldwide organization. And he connected me with them. And they partnered with me. They, I gave them everything I could give them. Because I wanted a recovery center for the people so much. And they came and built a recovery center here. And I work for them. And I love it. They're really good to me. We did get our own house about a year and a half later in this area from the UEP. And 
I met my husband during the process. So after I applied for the Dream Center house, then I met my husband after that. And then it was about from the time I applied in February, the next year in June is when I met the Dream Center people. They're a worldwide organization. They have like 30 Dream Centers in India. So like they have a lot in America, more than that in America. (laughs) But anyway, they have so much passion and they're really, they were like the first company in town to become licensed business after Warren Jeffs took all the FLDS and changed his plan and scattered them everywhere. So they weren't going after the house because Warren Jeffs told them not to fight. It's theirs anyway. They shouldn't have to fight for their property. But they could have if he didn't tell them not to. Somebody was going to get it because they weren't paying the back taxes. There was like $50,000 needed in back taxes when I was awarded the house. So um, so I knew somebody was going to get it. Uh, it might as well be a recovery center. Why not? You know. <laughs> yeah. So I went after it. And yeah, and God helped it all work out because it took about a year. But then they started working on their licensing. It took them about three years to get all the sprinkler systems in, the licensing to make it a commercial building. And now it has been filled to capacity for three years, over three years. Like in October, it was three years. And I love working here. It's, it's a passion of mine, you know, to help people anyway. It helps me heal too. And and then we got our own house. Our house is a fix-up. So we are fixing it up slowly, my husband and I. We married... I think I met him in June, the next year in June, we got married. Yeah, I think that's, and that's just kind of a amazing part of the story where, you know, his house where, you know, so many terrible things happen now is a, a recovery center for, for, to help others that are, are struggling. So, I mean, that's, that's so amazing. And it's great that you had that, you know, that vision and, you know, you made it happen. So I, I really like kind of that a conclusion to that part of the story. I mean, you, you kind of just checked off uh, pretty much a good chunk of the questions you've, uh, you've done this once or twice. So I, you, you, you covered a lot, a lot since the last time that I talked. So I think that, uh, no, I, I, I like to hear that, uh, you know, great things are happening now and from a situation that was not so great at one point um, in wrapping things up, I want to, ask you where everything stands i want to know kind of what your life looks like now i know you said you work for the dream center you're fixing up a house kind of tell us a little bit more about where your where your life is currently and maybe what you hope the future holds and then also let's kind of leave off where where the flds church is you know we you you covered about how warren was running from the law he was caught i think i i don't remember for sure maybe 2000 14. It's been a good little while ago, but he still leads the church. I don't know how strong it is at this point. So kind of uh, to leave, leave things up where you're at and where the church is now. Yeah. So for me, I'm really looking forward to uh, mostly focusing on the healing journey. Mm-hmm. Like I want, like I have a documentary out about like the hard stuff and it kind of touches on like the positive at the end. But my hope, because that's that's helpful, because then I have foundation, and you know I don't have to. When mission crews come to the Dream Center from all over the world, if they've watched the documentary, I can start more from the positive side. And my dream is like now that that's all out, like we need to highlight how important the healing journey is, because it's super important to me now in my life and to the community here that has changed mostly from FLDS to XFLDS. We have 
what was the process like of learning about the world, you know, and seeing the ocean for the first time was like, my husband took me on my honeymoon to the ocean for the first time in my life. I had never seen it. And, you know, like some of those highlights are super important. So that's my next journey is like, I want to go to the healing journey and highlight how, how happy it is and how, you know, cause most media will say my story before was like, uh, a horror story and after it's too good to be true but it's all true you know it's like mm. contrast is huge for me but so that's my journey is i want to show people how important the healing journey is and, it, and it's hard to get to because what i've noticed is like because of the flds and how it's still going on and the dark stuff is still happening um people don't know how to to say the positive all the time because it's like a, it's like about half now. I, we we estimate it's like five thousand that are FLDS still, and five thousand that are XFLDS since Warren Jeffs. So that's a pretty good difference. Right. But it is definitely still going on. Warren Jeffs is definitely leading the people still. Um, we believe his son is also trying to take over as soon as Warren Jeffs passes away, which is super detrimental. It will be a like a horror story for them continuing. If that happens, I believe um, he's already put out a lot of revelations saying like basically preparing them for like a Jim Jones situation, which is really tragic. We're hoping that shifts. We're trying to do everything we can with law enforcement and things to help that shift. It's super complicated right now. So with the history of people who have stepped up to take part in making a difference in Utah has been super hard for them. Most of them. Um, they some of them have lost their careers in the past, like maybe, you know, because like just from trying to help understand, trying to educate people in law enforcement. So like um, people don't want to take on the topic. They don't want to always step up to that plate because of the history. We need to get some more done. And we only have like four years left because he put a timeline on the FLDS the son of Warren. Mm. I don't know how that's shifting, but like some people are trying really hard to get like that guy investigated, Warren's son, Helaman. Um, they want to get him investigated, but I don't know if he's still even in that position. They're trying to hide it from us. I think the FLDS are trying to sugarcoat it and hide it. So we don't know if it's that or if he's actually not in that position anymore, but like we really wish we knew because like, in four years, when he was in that position, for sure, he put that timeline of four, like five years, and it's been already a year, almost two years. So we only, ha we don't have a lot of time. We don't have indefinite time to just figure out America and figure out our own lives. I think people need to take seriously what actually we need to focus on, you know, like, because like, for me, it's hard for me, because like, when you become an activist, which I have done, they usually say, narrow it down until you can handle the problem. So my angle is actually healing from generational abuse. It's not actually cults because I do believe in God. I, like the Dream Center is a public organization about being basic Christian, but um, they believe the Bible. And I always have, have seen so many miracles. It's hard for me not to think there is a real God um, because it was just too miraculous. So I don't study cults. I don't really do that. My thing is more healing from generational abuse. And when you talk about this this deadline and stuff like it's just really i don't know yeah i mean that that's a that's a whole nother can of worms for sure i mean i think that we could yeah. probably we could talk for forever but i do want to wrap wrap things up and just yeah. 
first I want to ask you, so the Dream Center, you're talking about, I, I understand it's a large organization, it's a recovery center. What is it, what's the recovery center for? Is it, is it, is it people that were in these situations? Is it recovery from substance abuse? What is the Dream Center exactly? So basically every Dream Center goes into the area and finds out what they need. It's mostly like a physical home, like it's housing, but it's not like for homeless. It's for, it's like a program to help people get on their feet, especially in short cricket is prioritizing people with polygamy backgrounds. Mm -hmm. they, they don't just prioritize FLES. They will take in a lot of their centennial next door to us. It's, they have um, AB, you know, they have every polygamy is prioritized here, but they do take other people too, domestic violence and stuff, but they do have to be kind of in crisis, you know, like, and we help them from one stage to the other. And, and in our program, I've been to a lot of domestic violence shelters. They usually have deadlines because they need to open the beds for the people in crisis. So they usually have a month to figure out their entire lives. Or if you're lucky, you'll get a big organization that will allow you three months. We have people in our program, we case base it. So we make the program set up for um, what they need, what their own goals and dreams are. And then we, as long as they're reaching their own goals, doing work toward it. They can't just sit here and treat it like a hotel. If they're working toward their own goals and also keeping peace in the house, which is a big deal because we have so many people and to do this, we have to have standard rules. Um, if they're doing both of those things, they can stay for years. And we also have a transitional house, which is another building where if they've graduated the program, done all the steps, then they can go to the transitional house at sometimes if they're like approved and stuff. So we can open up beds for people in crisis. That's kind of how it works here. Um, we do have a, a quite a strict, I feel like it's pretty strict about who we select because we have children here. It's mostly for single moms to change the cycle of the cult. You know, like they start these mothers really young. They get stuck in, they get trapped in with children and they don't always know how to escape. So that's the main priority here is like to change that cycle. So we have children here. So we definitely do background checks because we can't just have anybody here. We have to have people who qualify. But like if they have like drug addiction and stuff like that, we have locations, other dream centers. They're out of state or they're farther into the state or, you know, but we can work with other programs if they're willing to. We usually refer them somewhere, somewhere at least. We don't have permanent mental health, mental illness, like help. Mostly we will help people if they have like hope of being independent. But our goal is not to house people forever. You know, like that's not what we're trying to do. Yeah. So there are programs for mental illness that do house in some states people forever. Mm -hmm. That's what they're, what's what they do. Right. So we just try to refer them to places like that if that's what they need. I gotcha. Well, it's, I mean, it's been a pleasure hearing your story. I really appreciate you sharing it. If you would tell, tell us whatever your connection points are, whether it's the Dream Center Whatever you want to shout out for uh, for people to, to stay in touch, just just uh, shout it out now if you would. ShortCreekDreamCenter.org is the Dream Center website. They do have a wish list on there if you're wondering how to help. They do have you know donation button, but they also have like wish list from Amazon so that you can like purchase the direct items that we actually want. Mm. Um, that sometimes helps people. They get excited mm. about the things that you know the bedroom sets or whatever we're looking for. We also like my website is briellecker.com. It's a work in progress. 
Um, it's been up for about two years, I think, at least. So, um, and then I have Facebook, Brielle Decker Blanchard. You know, there's just Instagram, I think it's Brielle Decker. Anyway, that's just yeah. basic. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was Brielle Decker. I learned just so much about her story, about the FLDS Church, about the Dream Center. I, I'm so thankful to, to speak to Brielle. And, you know, like I said in the beginning, it, it was a unique interview because of uh, just her passion behind the the story, the passion behind helping others, you know, get out of, uh, of bad situations that she covers things very quickly and she she kind of is excited to get into that next thing. So she kind of covers a lot of things before I'm able to, to ask them. Uh, but that just provided, you know, the opportunity to hear things that I would have never even asked about because I didn't even know was, uh, was a thing. So appreciate Brielle. Appreciate um, her time. Appreciate you being here. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, please do follow along on on, uh, on apple and on spotify i think one is a subscribe one's a follow but it'll make sure that you hear other episodes i do have some some other episodes coming that uh, is related to this topic and and several in the past that have dealt with with other extreme religions uh, both people that are still in them and people that have left them and we talk about uh, you know the their stories in a respectful way uh, i talked to so many other people completely outside of this world true crime olympic medalists actors all kinds of people with interesting stories to tell so hope you'll follow along there leave a five-star review on apple and on spotify leave a written review on apple even more amazing um not enough podcast on instagram not enough jackson f on facebook jacksonf.com lots of places to follow along make sure that you go follow along with brielle as well her links will be in the show notes she talked about them uh, moments ago go check out the dream center Donate if that's something that you're you're able to do. They're doing some some really great things, and uh, I think that uh, you know great things are in store for them. And uh, yeah, again, thanks for being here. Thanks, Brielle, for uh, for sharing your story. We'll see you next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time, where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.